Welcome to the West Side Audio Message Podcast. We hope you enjoy today's message. And if you're looking for more ways to connect with West Side Assembly of God, feel free to check us out at www.westsideag.org. You'll find all the information about our service times, upcoming events, and opportunities for you to plug in and get connected with West Side Assembly of God. Additionally, you'll find a complete online archive of all of the previous and current messages absolutely free of charge. We hope you are encouraged by this week's message, and thanks again for downloading the West Side Audio Message Podcast. What are you doing about evangelism? I'm not asking for a show of hands, but I do want to ask this question you ask yourself. Have you ever won anybody to the Lord? How often have you witnessed in an effort to try and win somebody to the Lord? When we stand before God, I think we will reflect on those things very seriously. When God asks us, was your life any more than just simply you trying to live for me? Did you spread the news to other people? And I think we'll feel differently about that when we stand before God than perhaps we feel about it here today. So I'm going to try and prepare you for that great day when we stand before God so you can have a passion for telling other people about the good news. Because I think one thing that is going to be of tremendous importance on that day is how many people did you bring with you? Not just did you make it, but how many did you bring with you? You have family members that need to know about Jesus. What are you doing about evangelizing them? You have friends and coworkers that need to know about Jesus. Are you hoping someday somebody else will go take care of that, or are you prepared to take care of that yourself? And I know we have to overcome issues of shyness, uncertainty, but nevertheless, the great commission to the church, and when I say the church, I mean you, the great commission to the church to take the gospel to the world, and the world is next to you. The world world lives in the house next to you. The world works at your job next to you. It's not just somewhere over in some third world country. We have a responsibility to take that. I wonder how you will feel if there's an awareness when we finally get to heaven, when we stand before God, that that person that you had contact with so many times throughout the week, every day standing beside them or frequently coming in contact with them, that they did not make it to heaven and you did not attempt to share with them the importance of preparing for eternity. So with that little bit of guilt trip I've placed on you, we're going to proceed into the book of Acts. I'm going to read some scripture, and uh, I'm going to talk to you about effective evangelism. We ought to all be evangelists. I'm going to reread some scripture that I read the last time I preached because there's a few more nuggets to pick out of that before I move on to the third chapter of Acts. So if you'll allow me, I'm going to go to the second chapter of Acts and I'm going to read part of the end of that chapter. I'm going to skip over the the part where it refers back to David and the Psalms. 
I think I can make sense out of this without reading that lengthy portion, but in the 22nd verse of the second chapter, it says, Ye men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs which God did by him in the midst of you, as you yourselves also know. Him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, you have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. It's important to understand the context of what we're reading here. He's laying the guilt, the accusation at the feet of these people. Whom God hath raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because he was not, it was not possible, he should be holden of it. I'm going to skip down to the 36th verse and pick it up there after we get through the Psalms. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made the same Jesus whom you have crucified, both Lord and Christ. Also take mental note of that. That's an important part of our evangelistic message. Now when they heard this, they were pricked in their hearts, and they said unto Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for remission of your sins, and you receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. For the promises unto you and to your children and to all who are far off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. And with many other words did he testify and exhort, saying, Save yourselves from this untoward generation. Now evangelism is a complex undertaking. Fundamentally, if we want to use the uh, fishing motif that Jesus introduced to us, making you fishers of men, evangelism is like reeling the people in. But I'm cautious with that analogy because when we fish with poles and with bait, there's something just a little bit deceptive about bait, isn't there? And we want to use bait, but we don't want to use deception. We don't want to make them think they're getting something good that ends up being something that is bad for them. So the analogy doesn't quite work out in our modern fishing techniques. Of course, when Jesus said, I'll make you fishers of men, he was speaking to a group of men who were fishermen, but they didn't have poles and hooks and worms. They went out with nets, and they threw the nets in, and they gathered in all they could gather. And knowing that they were skilled fishermen, Jesus told them, I want to convert your skills over to going out and gathering people into the kingdom. So fundamentally evangelism is reeling people in or gathering them in as with a net. And here's a list of suggested messages we can use in evangelism. And each one has a different level of effectiveness. Each one has its strengths and its weaknesses that we will point out today. Some are supplemental and not really standalone. They need to go with some of the others and put them together to make a good evangelistic tool. But the most important thing to learn from this list I'm about to share with you is to be discerning in your evangelism and skillfully use these to provide the most effective technique for reaching others for Jesus. Before we get started, let me just make a brief reference to an example of clumsy evangelism. Every once in a while, 
when I'm making a trip around town, and particularly I'm thinking about making a trip home from work, there's a, there's a corner on the route that I take where from time to time I see somebody standing there with a cardboard sign with hand-scribbled messages on it that he is pointing at the traffic as they go by, and the message varies from time to time, but it might say something to the effect of repent, or it might say something to the effect Jesus is coming soon, and I can't help but notice every time I see this, the traffic just passes by and ignores them, and the thing that always comes into my mind is what effect are they having on the kingdom? How many people slam on their brakes, pull the car over, run over there, and say, tell me more about what you're trying to say? I don't think they're having a lot of effect by their approach. And one thing I often think about when I go by there is I would imagine myself stopping the car at a convenient location, going back and going up to these people and just saying, out of pure curiosity not confrontational, not in a critical way, out of pure curiosity, what are you hoping to accomplish? What do you envision is going to happen because you're standing there with your handmade sign and waving it at people as it go by? I never do that because I know they would not take that as being non-confrontational. But I'd like to get into their mind. I would like to see how they're thinking. I would like to see why they think what they're doing is effective in evangelizing this world. I can only say that I think that is probably one example of sincere but ineffective evangelism. Now, if you want to be evangelistic, and you ought to want to be evangelistic, don't you want to use effective techniques? Do you really want to waste your life trying to be an evangelist that you don't do anything but just offend people? The, the man that that became our first Royal Ranger leader in the church I grew up in. Took on that task before he was ever saved. So he enjoyed the outdoors. He loved hunting. He loved fishing. He loved shooting guns. He was perfect for Royal Rangers, all except he didn't know Jesus. And we were entrusted to his care as he took us out on Royal Ranger outings, and we saw the carnal side of him a few times. But eventually he did get saved. Now that's not exactly the way I recommend that you get people saved. Put them in charge of a Sunday school class and hope that they get saved one day. But he did get saved. And when he got saved, he became radical. He witnessed to everybody. He drove a local delivery truck. So he contacted various people uh, throughout the week. He was constantly seeing new people. When he would come and make deliveries at the factory where I worked, he would corner people and talk to them about Jesus. And they knew that I was friends with this man. And it got to the point where they came to me. And they said, can you have a talk with this man? He's very annoying. I went home and I talked to my dad. I said, Dad, I said, this man, he comes and makes deliveries at the factory and we're beginning to get massive complaints about this man that all he never wants to talk to anybody about anything but Jesus. 
He can't come in and have a normal conversation with them without talking about Jesus. And it's getting to where they avoid him. They don't want to see him coming. They'll slip around when they see him coming and get away from him. What am I supposed to do? My dad says, well, you know, he said, there's probably not much you can do. But he said, one of these days, if they get to the point where they have a need, at least they're going to know where they can go. Now, the sad thing about it is, the good thing about it is the man wanted to share Jesus with everybody. And he's still alive today. He's almost 90 years old, and he's still just as obnoxious today as he was back then. He still goes down to Hy-Vee and has his breakfast and talks to everybody about Jesus. And to this day, I do not know one man, one individual, honestly, that I can think of that he's ever led to the Lord. There is busy evangelism without any fruit. Why? Because he's not effective in how to deal with people. Now, it's wonderful to want to be an evangelist, and it's great to have the courage and the nerve to want to speak for Jesus any place and every place you go. But if you're not accomplishing anything, you might need to want to rethink how you're going about this. I'm not going to give you the perfect answers today, but I'm going to challenge you and make you at least consider being an evangelist and maybe consider if you're going to do this, what's your best approach? The first one is an obvious one. It's the message of your personal testimony. Peter walked with Jesus. He could talk to people about this man. He saw him in action. He saw how he operated. He could answer questions about Jesus. Few people on the face of the earth could answer at that point. He had a personal testimony. He saw the healings. He saw people raised from the dead. He saw Jesus crucified. He saw him risen. He was a witness, and he had such a powerful testimony. And there are people here today that have a wonderful testimony that can be shared. And a personal testimony, very obviously, can be a very effective tool for witnessing simply because... So many people have so many needs, and there's a chance with your testimony, you're going to interest them in your testimony because they might relate to that. They might say, you know, that's exactly what I'm going through. What worked for you? Why did this make things better for you? Your personal testimony can really pull them in. They're eager for somebody to make a personal recommendation from somebody who claims they have found the answer. They have found success. Now, that's, this is not only in Christianity. We take the word of people on personal testimonies about everything. Somebody comes and they're all excited about the latest herb that healed their joints. And they say, I have a personal testimony. This stuff here, you can get it on Amazon for 10 bucks a bottle. You take it for two weeks and poof, you're healed. And suddenly everybody's got to have some of that stuff. Somebody shows up with a little magnet bracelet on their wrist. And they say, I've been, I'm a new man. I started wearing this magnet and my back pain is gone and, and my bank account is full and, and everybody wants that magnet. Everybody wants your personal testimony. It goes a long, long ways. Madison Avenue knows that because whenever they will put these, uh, these commercials on TV and they will have people giving a personal testimony about their product, sometimes you don't know who these people are. Sometimes they're not even real people with real testimonies. I mean, they're real people, but they're not really with real testimonies. They're paid 
actors, and it says so, a disclaimer there. Sometimes it's celebrities that have bought into this, and they are endorsing this product, and the celebrity will say, since I've been using this, my life has been, been transformed, and of course, everybody has to go buy that stuff. Now, how many of you people, and once again, you, you, you might be hesitant to raise your hand, but just think about it, would you? How many of you people have bought stuff because it was the hot thing that everybody was recommending, it was the trendy thing, and now you've come to the realization that didn't work either and you've got all this collection of stuff everybody swears by it we, we buy into these things because somebody has a personal testimony well doesn't a personal testimony for Jesus also have a certain amount of effectiveness has Nikki Cruz Nikki Cruz ever been to this church Patty Nikki Cruz ever been to this church his personal testimony David Wilkerson went into the, uh, uh, the, the streets of New York City to try and minister to the problem of the gangs that was going on down there. And, and Nikki Cruz uh, had, had been deposited into this country. Uh, I mean, his parents didn't come with him. He just, just left in this country. He became a, a street urchin, basically joined the Mau Mau uh, gang and, and uh, part of that was, was uh, the fame in being a, a Mau Mau was you, you, really, you really achieved stardom and, and success when you had killed somebody. I mean, you could beat them, you could beat them bloody, and then they would congratulate you. But Nicky became crazy because he recognized it brought him attention. And these, even, the, even the gang members, uh, man, we've seen, you're, we're crazy, but you're crazy. And because David Wilkerson went into the streets and planted the seed of the gospel in Nicky Cruz, he got saved and he became a minister and traveled around the world giving his testimony. That's what I used to be. But Jesus transformed me. And, and who, knows, who knows how many people were touched by the testimony of Nicky Cruz. But the personal testimony doesn't move everybody. It moves me. I enjoy hearing the personal testimonies. But Paul gave his personal testimony, you see in the book of Acts, as often as he had an opportunity. He didn't care who he was standing before. He, he stood before King Agrippa and gave his testimony. He appealed to Caesar so he could stole, go stand before Caesar and give his personal testimony. And you read that, and it's the same thing, uh, same story, same testimony over and over. It moved Paul so dramatically. He wanted to share with everybody, and he shared it with King Agrippa. And the King James Version is a little misleading on that. And uh, in the King James Version, it says, almost thou persuadest me. But that really isn't what was being said there. What King Agrippa really said to Paul was, do you really think in such a short time you're going to make a Christian convert out of me? That was really Agrippa's response to that. So here Paul is with this magnificent testimony of being knocked to the ground by the brilliance of a vision of Jesus and coming to realization, this is the man that I have been fighting against, but he is the Messiah, he is the Savior, he is the Lord, and now I'm a convert, and I'm no longer persecuting Christians, I am a Christian. What a testimony! And all this thing about being blinded and, uh, and about... Uh, being healed from his blindness and, and becoming this great apostle and church planter. 
What a testimony. And the king says, you think, you think that's going to work on me? I hear your testimony. You want me to be a Christian? You want me to be a Christian? Immediately, it doesn't work that way, Paul. So, see, personal testimony doesn't always generate the kind of response that we would hope it would. How many times have you shared your testimony? And I just found out a while ago that maybe a lot of us haven't shared our testimony. But for those of you, perhaps you have. How many times have you shared your testimony, testimony and hoping and believing that it moved the people you were talking to like it moved you? And when you get done, it's, they're not moved at all. They say, well, well, good for you. But thank you very much. I'm not interested. And you're, you're so let down because you think that God did this work in my life and everybody ought to be just, just moved to tears and moved to a relationship with Jesus because I'm bearing testimony what he did for me. And they're like, so what? I don't care. And the personal testimony doesn't penetrate everybody like we hope that it would. Another problem with the personal testimony, in spite of the fact that I love to hear them, in spite of the fact that they are effective uh, many times, is in giving our personal testimony, we tend to imply the possibility of promises that maybe will not be fulfilled. In other words, you've heard the testimony of people who have been dramatically healed. And Sometimes it's implied at the end of the testimony, this is what God did for me. This is what God can do. And this is what God will do for you if you will let him. So you've got the hopes of people built up. Uh, I think I've mentioned uh, evangelist Betty Baxter a few times in the past 12 years I've been here. But Ann and I went to a Betty Baxter uh, meeting in Georgia uh, because we were evangelizing, we had a few days off, and we found out she was there. And her testimony was that she was all folded over, physically folded over. Arms were not functional, legs were not functional. She laid her head on her lap, and she was completely immobile. But Jesus had specifically come to her in a vision and promised her at a specific hour, on a specific day, she was going to be healed. So she had a new dress, she had a pair of shoes, everything was ready to go. And she's waiting for this healing. And at the appropriate time, uh, there was the manifestations of the wind blowing in and she she saw Jesus nobody else saw him he came in lifted her out of the chair and she was made a hundred percent whole put her new dress on new shoes and she's good to go now what a marvelous testimony and in her ministry the implication was that this is what God can do and so she had advertised, bring, bring the sick, bring, bring the crippled. And they brought them in wheelchairs. They brought them on crutches. They brought them in hospital beds. And as she was preaching, these people were scattered about with all these needs. And then her testimony is, this is what God can do. And this is what he's going to do for you tonight. She prayed for everybody and there was no evidence of anybody being healed. The people came in on hospital beds, went out on hospital beds. Came in on wheelchairs, went out on wheelchairs, came out on crutches, went out on crutches. And see, there's an Im implication in our testimony oftentimes that this is what God did and this is what he's going to do for you. And then sometimes when God doesn't, then the people are really confused and they're really disappointed. That's one of the problems we have with a personal testimony. We expect God to do the same thing for others that he did for us. I've heard people had a testimony of having been healed of cancer. 
And so they obviously want to want to pray for others to be healed of cancer and not everybody that they pray for gets healed of cancer so the, the personal testimony has a limit in what it's able to do if we are implying certain promises that may never come to pass you can testify to some people I've never found such peace and contentment until I gave my life to Jesus Christ but I've known people who have come to Jesus Christ and the, they did not find the peace and contentment you found when they first came they found a lot of trouble they found a lot of tribulation found a lot of turmoil and you know it's, it's over simplistic for us to think that just because somebody comes to know Jesus Christ that suddenly their life is perfect everything's at peace the storm has been calm because some people come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ and their troubles don't go away. And they have to learn to walk through those and still trust in God. You have a personal testimony of what happened to you, but it doesn't happen that way with everybody else. You can testify that God delivered you immediately from alcohol. But you pray for somebody else and they get saved and they still struggle with their alcohol. They struggle with their addictions. Personal testimony is good. But you understand from what I'm trying to share with you, it does have its limitations. So there's got to be other things we can do in evangelizing other than just relying on our personal testimony. An important point of the message of evangelism is sharing with other people the life of Christ. And it has its shortcomings too. Uh, there are some people in this world, and this is the reason sharing the life of Christ is effective for some. There are some people in this world looking for role models. They're looking for somebody that gives them hope that not everybody is wicked, perverse, untrustworthy. And when you can present Jesus Christ to the world as the perfect person, the reliable person, I'm reminded of a, a song that was popular several years ago, and it's about just sharing Jesus and who he is with the world. I give you Jesus. He's a peace that passes all understanding. Remember that song? If you don't forget it. But it's a song that is, this is Jesus. He's the water that you drink and you never thirst again. This is who Jesus is. And people want to hear that. He's the flawless, perfect lamb. of He's the sinless, sinless lamb of God. He's the one that will never fail you. He's the one that never forsake you. All of these things, we, and some people want to hear that. They want to find somebody with some integrity they can put some trust in. And so we share the message of the life of Christ. Some people respond to that. He has attributes that they do not find in any other people. The problem is that the conservatives shied away from using the life of Jesus as a tool of evangelism because the liberals shied away from using the message of the atonement as a tool of evangelism. The liberals didn't want to talk about the blood. It was offensive. 
They don't want to talk about Jesus being crucified. It's an ugly thing to think of. It depresses people. Let's keep the message positive. So the liberals said, well, let's talk about the life of Jesus. That's a nice, clean message. So when the conservatives saw that the liberals had dropped the message of the atonement from their evangelistic message, then the conservative says, well, we don't want to preach the life of Christ because that's a wimpy message. It leaves out the important part the, the sacrifice of Jesus. And so they separated into camps and the liberals would talk about how nice and fluffy Jesus is and the conservatives would say, he died for you and for your sins. He nailed your sins to the cross and they didn't want to cross into each other's camp. But the tragedy of that is that the conservative camp forgot the message of the life of Christ because it's important too. Of course, the message of the sacrifice of Jesus is fundamental. It's important, should not be forgotten, but we should not forsake the other message of preaching the life of Christ as well. That, but there's still, I mean, some people, their heart is warmed by the message of the life of Christ. Let's face it. It, it, was, it was still in our doctrine. It was still in our hymn books. What a friend we have in Jesus. All our sins and griefs to bear. That's a positive message. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. There he is. He's your resource. He's your strength. The life of Jesus Christ. It's compelling. It brings people in. But it has its shortcomings. It has its weaknesses. The message of the life of Christ is somewhat inspiring to some, but to others, it's, it's, a, it's rather weak as a standalone message. There's been many people who have admired Jesus for the kind of person that he was. Mahatma Gandhi was one of them. He admired Jesus, but he refused to accept that Jesus was unique. He loved his teachings. He loved his lifestyle. But whenever Jesus proclaimed that I am the only way, the only truth, and the only life, he said, I don't like that part at all. So he admired him on one level. What a nice guy. We could, we could learn something from him. We could emulate him in our life in many ways. But ignoring the main point is that he is the way of salvation to the Lord. So see, the life of Jesus can be inspiring, but unless you bring people to the point of understanding it's not just a good man who lived an exemplary life, but it was the Son of God who died to set you free. The messages are inseparable. If we study the life of Jesus only as a life to emulate, but we don't understand Jesus as the atoning sacrifice for our sins, we're not going to gain much. Number three, in our evangelism, as I uh, cue from Peter's message, is we, we must bring the message of sin and repentance to people. And I want to be very careful about how I portray this, how I present this to you. There's clumsy evangelism, as I've mentioned, and there's effective evangelism. There's foolish ways of evangelizing, and there's wise ways of evangelizing. What I'm going to deal with here is mainly, at some point, if we're going to effectively evangelize people and bring them to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, it is absolutely 
vital that they understand before they make this commitment what they're agreeing to. They're agreeing to understand that they have failed, they have fallen short, they are sinners, and that Jesus Christ can forgive them of their sins, but in doing so, they have to accept the challenge of repenting from what they have been and what they have done and starting a new life. That's a part of the package deal. And I think part of the tragedy is we have presented a gospel that does not up front let people know this is what you're getting into. We've made salvation a very skinny message. How many want to go to heaven? Well, everybody raises their hand. Well, good, let's pray. Lord, take them to heaven. I accept Jesus Christ as my personal Savior. I accept eternal life. But if we have not been honest enough up front with these people to let them know, now here's what you're signing up for. You're signing up for a radical change in your life. We're not talking about a harbor, a port in the time of a storm. We're talking about a transformation of your lifestyle ceasing to be what you used to be, ceasing to do things the way you used to do them, getting a new mentality, following Jesus, repenting for what you have done, and turning around and following a new way, a new life, a new order. That's what it's all about. The message of sin and repentance has to be a part of bringing people in. And like I said, there's a clumsy way of doing this. We don't want to go down on the street corner somewhere in our quad cities and start shouting out at everybody, you're a sinner and you're going to hell. That probably is not going to make them want to come and learn more about what message we have for them that day. And besides, they got a lot of problems in their life that it's it's not because they're, they're not going to hell because they are sinners. They are going to hell because they do not know Jesus Christ as their personal Savior. And that you say, what's the difference? Well, there's an important difference I'm trying to stress here. I've had people come to me occasionally in my ministry, and they've had scenarios similar to this, that the specific details have been, very, have been different from case to case, but they all have this in common. They would say, well, Pastor, <clears throat> I, I know a friend or I have family or whatever it may be, that they are uh, living in sin and it's not right. And I'm trying to convince them they're living in sin and what should I do? Now, this can take a lot of different forms. This can take the form of uh, children who decide just to shack up and the parents saying, you know, they're living in sin. Or it can be the, the, the form of friends who have made a choice that is, is not a godly choice. And the people are saying, how can I convince them that they're living in sin? And I, I, I even met s- scenarios where uh, elderly men and women uh, choose to live together because they get better benefits from the government than they do if they get married. They lose benefits, so they just live together. And then somebody comes and says, well, what would you tell them in such a case? You know, they're sinning. And, as a, and in, in all of these cases, my first question is, do they profess to be a Christian? Do they, are, they, are they trying to live a godly life? And sometimes they say, well, no, not at all. I said, you're trying to tell them that they're committing a sin and it bothers you, but they don't even know Jesus Christ as their personal Savior. You're taking the wrong approach to this. Until they are willing to make Christ their Savior, what difference does it make what they're doing? They're going to hell anyway. They 
not going to hell because they're living together. They're going to hell because they do not know Jesus Christ as a personal Savior. Like trying to clean them up before they get saved. Doesn't work that way. But having dealt with that side of it, there is a trend in churches today that minimizes the subject of sin. Minimize it, if not completely avoid it, okay? Altar calls are centered around things like find peace in your life, find new purpose in your life, find prosperity by living according to God's precepts, or find wholeness in your marriage. Find new life because the old one was boring. And then none of these things necessarily address the important issue of sin and the necessity of repentance from sin. It's just sign up and get life improvement. That's what Jesus will do for you. He'll improve your life. But these kind of altar calls, these kind of invitations to come to Jesus, don't present the fact that if you come to Jesus, you're going to have to give something up. You're going to have to make some commitments to him. One quote I read this past week said, if you're meeting Jesus did not change you, you didn't meet the real Jesus. Salvation has been pitched as life improvement, but salvation is first and foremost salvation from our sins. And one con commentator that I read in studying for this said, we should not ask people to accept Christ as Savior until he or she has been told this step involves repenting from sin and salvation is primarily from sin. So keep this in mind as you're evangelizing. If all you're trying to do is reel somebody in by telling them, if you come to know Jesus Christ, your personal Savior, how much better your life is going to be, you are misrepresenting what salvation is all about. You are getting them hooked and bringing them in, and then now somebody's got the responsibility to someday, after they've come in and joined, say, oh, by the way, did I mention this is going to be a life-changing experience for you? There's some things you're going to have to change in your lifestyle. There's a, going to be a change in the way you think. You're going to have to have a biblical worldview, and all of a sudden, well, I didn't sign up for this. I thought I was getting saved because my marriage was falling apart and I wanted God to put my marriage back together. But it involves something very personal. So the message of sin and repentance cannot be totally devoid from our message of evangelism. Some modern-day philosophies advocate for calling people to come to Jesus and addressing the issue of sin in subsequent discipleship classes and really that I understand that but they should not be so ignorant of the fact that that's where they'll be going that they think you have done the bait and switch on them certainly discipleship classes are for helping people to grow in their life but how long do they have to wait to find out when you were trying to get them saved, you were inferring, I want to get you changed by the power of God. We don't want to spring that on them. Certainly we can disciple them later, but sometimes they get to that point and they say, oh, I didn't realize that involved all of this. I'm not interested anymore. We can't just simply preach the message of sin to a lost and dying world. The message alone that to the world, you're just a bunch of sinners, doesn't resonate 
with them. It's the message of Jesus and the hope that he brings that draws men. Then it's the reality that they cannot embrace this Jesus and the hope that he offers if they're not aware of accepting Jesus as their Savior means a new lifestyle. The next message of evangelism is the message of the cross. And Peter referred to the crucifixion, the cross, in his sermon. The cross is a highly controversial subject. You're probably aware of lawsuits that have been uh, filed concerning the presence of public crosses. There's been one particularly in the news very recently. The ACLU and a few liberal groups running around trying to get a cross taken down. It was offensive to them. The cross is a controversial issue. And not just as a symbol, but what is behind the symbol. If there was nothing behind the symbol, I've got to believe most of these people would not be as upset as what they are. There's something behind this cross that irritates them. I remember hearing the testimony of a Jewish man who had gotten saved. And when he was growing up as a Jew, that he described the emotions that he felt every time he'd go by that church with that blinking blue neon sign, that cross, and what it did to him as a Jew. It was offensive. He learned to hate that cross. And the world hates the cross because it represents a message that they are completely offended by, a message of, of sacrifice by the only begotten Son of God, a message of the only Savior of the world. It doesn't allow for other people to find their way to God through other avenues. There's, there's a whole lot implied in the cross that just doesn't set well with the world. But the message of the cross is an important part of evangelism. And Peter reminded the Jews of the cross and reminded them they were guilty of crucifying the Messiah on the cross. The cross is a message of a blood sacrifice. That didn't set well with people. It certainly doesn't set well, you might be surprised to learn, it doesn't set well with Hindus because they deplore the harming of animals. And when you've got a cross that is talking about the Lamb of God that is crucified or the blood that was shed, that's not the kind of message that you're going to wade into the Hindus and say, hey, do I have a message for you? The Lamb of God was slaughtered and slain for your sins, and they're going to go, ooh, we don't like that message. And you've got to find a way to get them to come to God so you can introduce them to what that really means because their, their prejudices, their biases are going to set them against that kind of an introductory evangelistic message. The message of the cross is difficult for people to truly understand. The Jews and the Muslims alike are repulsed. They both repulsed by the idea that the Messiah was crucified like a common criminal. And to both of these groups, it, it makes the, uh, the two concepts of the cross and the Messiah totally incompatible. And furthermore, some view the cross as a weakness. They view the cross as an example of a, a defeat 
by Jesus, not a victory. And that's, that's hard for us to comprehend because we're Christians. We look at the cross and we think victory. But we see the other side of the cross. We see the resurrection. There are people who look on the cross and they think that's a weakness, that's a flaw, that's a glitch in the story of Jesus Christ. It's where he was defeated. One Buddhist writer regarded Christ as he read the story of his life as a complete failure because he says, it seems to me he was defeated by the very wickedness he sought to come and combat. But the message of the cross is not one of Christ being defeated, but quite the contrary. It's the message of the incredible strength and courage of Jesus Christ to endure what seems to be beyond human endurance and then emerge victorious over death, hell, and the grave. And here's where I've got to concede a little bit about the world's confusion. We love the cross as a symbol. We've got the crosses up here. We had a larger cross before we remodeled. We wear little crosses around our neck. We've got cross on charms, and, and uh, we, we love crosses. Crosses are very, very important to us, almost, almost to the point of becoming almost superstitious in the Christian community. The crosses, I've seen people that, uh, in, haven't seen it recently, but in, in uh, uh, the history in my past, I remember when people dealing with somebody they thought was demon-possessed, they ran and, and grabbed a little cross and held it in front of them, like this cross is going to cast a demon out. It's a symbol. And it's an odd symbol. The, the cross that we have that resembles these on our wall up here, the cross that we have was not the cross at all that Jesus was crucified on. It was not a T-shaped cross. Uh, they were crucified on X-shaped planks. But you won't see that in any movie because it wouldn't make any sense to an American uh, culture. We like to see the cross represented. It, it, it makes more sense to us. But therefore, the cross was not even a symbol uh, valued by the early church. They hadn't gotten into symbolism and stuff like that yet beyond just the Eucharist and the blood and, and, and the, uh, uh, the bread, the, the juice and the bread. But beyond that, they weren't, they weren't into all these symbolisms and things. So the cross didn't develop as a symbol until centuries later and when it did, and then we have to pause and think, well, why is the cross our favorite symbol? Because when the guy says, I, I look at the cross and I see defeat. Well, when we look at the cross, what, I mean, what, what do you think it ought to remind people of? It, the cross ought to remind somebody of they got crucified. And for some reason, we have, we have uh, trained ourselves to look at the cross and think, Sacrifice but resurrection. We have tied that together so it doesn't bother us. I look at the cross and I don't think defeat. I think he was crucified, buried, but he rose again. But the cross doesn't tell me he rose again. And the cross doesn't tell the world he rose again. It stops right there. So I can understand in, in a certain way why the world looks at that and they scratch their heads and say, well, why is that a symbol of victory? It really, it's not a clear, obvious symbol of victory, but it still is a necessary part of the evangelistic message because 
it really does. Here's what the cross probably demonstrates more than the resurrection. The, the cross is not really a great symbol of the resurrection. It's a great symbol of his sacrifice. But I'll tell you what it is a better symbol of. It's a symbol of somebody who endured something that you could not. The cross is a symbol that speaks heroism to us. I look at the cross and I am slain thinking, look what he did. Look what he endured. I'm reminded that cross was my cross. It wasn't his. He wasn't guilty. He didn't deserve it. But I look at it and think there's my cross. He took it. He was nailed to my cross. He took my sins upon the cross. He suffered my pain. I was the sinner. I was the failure. He took it all. That's a hero to me. That's what the cross speaks to me. If people don't want to buy into Christianity because they think it requires them to give up too much, They're not really giving even the smallest consideration to the price Jesus paid for them to have eternal life. Because see, when you see the cross, here's what the cross ought to speak to you. The cross ought to speak to you courage, fearlessness, endurance, and sacrifice. So when I, I see the cross and I see what he endured, it makes my challenges in life look silly. And we complain about a lot of things in life. We complain if the air conditioner didn't work when it was too hot last night. Jesus died on a cross. His body was mutilated. We complain because lunch is late. The line at the supermarket's too long. We complain because the body is aching in new places it never used to ache before. We've got all kinds of complaints. We complain because we don't got quite enough money to do everything we want to do. We have to budget and we complain. Jesus died on a cross. So when I look at the cross, I think about the ultimate sacrifice and it diminishes my problems in life. If, if I were given the choice to either, either have the difficulties I have in life or crawl up out there on that cross and let them nail me to that cross and hang there and be mocked by the crowd, I would take all of my other choices in life before I would take that one because my problems are minimal. That's what the cross speaks to me. I can endure health challenges because I don't have to hang on a cross. I can endure criticism as a pastor because I don't have to hang on a cross. I can endure my physical struggles because I don't have to hang on a cross. My health challenges, I don't have to hang on a cross. My financial difficulties, but I don't have to hang on a cross. I can justify, therefore, when I see what Jesus did, making any sacrifice I have to make because he made the ultimate sacrifice for me. Therefore, when people don't want to get too serious about God because they don't want to, oh, if I get serious about God, I'm afraid I'm going to have to give up, give up my Sundays. 
Uh, I'm afraid if I get serious about God, I'm going to have to be, I'm going to be expected to give money, tithes and offerings. If I get serious about God, I might have to make some lifestyle choices and give up some social uh, interactions that I don't want to give up. I don't, I don't want to give up the, the, the party. I don't want to give up the bars. I don't want to give up the social circle. I don't want to give up my friends. I don't know what you're going to have to give up, but oftentimes you do have to give a lot of stuff up. And they don't want to come to Jesus because it's inconvenience. Inconvenience, Jesus died on a cross. And you're talking to me about inconvenience? If this can get down in our heart, if this can get in our, 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 uh, our DNA, that he suffered and died on your cross, and you don't want to have to come and sit in church for a couple hours on Sunday, give me a break. It's sad when we balk at the possibility of maybe being inconvenienced by our service to Christ when he was more than inconvenienced when he took our place on the cross. He paid it all. We look spoiled and childish and petty when we're inconvenienced. The final message is a very short one. I'm concluding. The message of evangelism it's important to include the message of the reign of Christ. And not just the millennial reign, not just he's coming back to reign, but the message that Jesus is Lord now. He is king now. Not that he is going to come and set up a government someday and then he will rule. He is the ruler now. And if you are a Christian that should be an important concept in your life. Jesus Christ is Lord. You defer to him in your life every day. Lord, what do you want me to do? That's a part of the message of evangelism. The message of evangelism is that you are under the authority of God now. You are in rebellion against God and God wants you to come into compliance and into authority. Jesus Christ is Lord and if you do not come to him, you will answer to him for not having obeyed him because he does rule supremely. That's a part of understanding what evangelism is all about. It's not just taking a message of a hope of eternal life to the world, but helping people understand God is the supreme ruler right now, not the American government, not even your parents are the supreme ruler. They're, they're uh, subordinate, but they're not the supreme ruler. God is the supreme ruler, and that's the reason whatever they were trying to tell the early church, you can do whatever you want, but stop preaching in the name of Jesus. And they said, we can't help but do this because we have to answer to God. We don't answer to men. He's the supreme ruler. Peter said, therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah, and the message of evangelism definitely includes the truth that God is the supreme authority in this world. We all give an account to him. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess Jesus Christ is Lord. And nobody will escape that. You can pretend and ignore it for a time, but you cannot escape the reality. Jesus rules over all today. 
And if we're not pleasing him, if we're not in compliance with him, we will be judged accordingly. How important is God in your life? Is he really more important than everything else? I'm going to conclude with this little story. Some of you may have already seen it. I posted it on Facebook. I found it. How inspiring. A young lady who was a, a member of the American soccer team, the national soccer team. What a privilege to get invited to play at that level, represent the United States. She loved soccer. It had been her lifelong dream to be able to play soccer at that level. She gets the invitation. And the announcement is made that the soccer team is going to be wearing the shirts and the apparel that celebrates gay pride. You know what she did? She quit the team. She said, I will not wear that shirt because I answer to God. It's more important that I please God than it is that I please myself. She turned away a lifetime opportunity to stand by her principles and her devotion to God. And I, even as I think on it, as I'm telling it right now, I'm thinking, man, give us more young people who have the kind of backbone, the kind of courage, the kind of strength, the kind of fortitude, the kind of integrity to look at this world and spit in their eye and say, I don't need your approval. I don't need your opportunities. I only need God's approval in my life. I don't need to run with you. I don't need to please you. I don't need to be a part of your crowd. I don't need to be popular in your assessment. I don't need to wear your clothes. I don't need to act like you. I need to answer to God. That's all we need is young people stand up for God and say, I reject the temptations of this world. I will not sell out the priceless relationship I have with God for anything this world has to offer. Bow your heads.